0: Chapter Fifth Parts Seven to Nine of God the Invisible King This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Tomko. God the Invisible King by h g Wells. Chapter Fifth Parts Seven to Nine. 7. Adjusting Life. This picturing of a human world more to the mind of God than this present world, and the discovery and realization of one's place and work in and for that kingdom of God, is a natural next phase in the development of the believer. He will set about revising and adjusting his scheme of life, his ways of living, his habits, and his relationships in the light of his new convictions. Most men and women who come to God will have already a certain righteousness in their lives. These things happen like a thunderclap only in strange exceptional cases, and the same movements of the mind that have brought them to God will already have brought their lives into a certain rightness of direction and conduct. Yet, occasionally, there will be someone to whom the self-examination that follows conversion will reveal an entirely wrong and evil way of living it may be that the light has come to some rich idler doing nothing but follow a pleasurable routine or to someone following some highly profitable and amusing but socially useless or socially mischievous occupation one may be an advocate at the disposal of any man's purpose or an actor or actress ready to fall in with any theatrical enterprise or a woman may find herself a prostitute or a pet wife a mere kept instrument of indulgence These are lives of prey. These are lives of futility. The light of God will not tolerate such lives. Here, religion can bring nothing but a severance from the old way of life altogether, a break and a struggle towards use and service and dignity. But, even here, it does not follow that because a life has been wrong, the new life that begins must be far as the poles asunder from the old every sort of experience that has ever come to a human being is in the self that he brings to god and there is no reason why a knowledge of evil ways should not determine the path of duty no one can better devise protections against vices than those who have practised them none know temptations better than those who have fallen if a man has followed an evil trade it becomes him to use his knowledge of the tricks of that trade to help end it He knows the charities it may claim and the remedies it needs. A very interesting case to discuss in relation to this question of adjustment is that of the barrister. A practicing barrister, under contemporary conditions, does indeed give, most typically, the opportunity for examining the relation of an ordinary, self-respecting worldly life to life under the dispensation of God discovered. A barrister is usually a man of some energy and ambition. His honor is molded by the traditions of an ancient and antiquated profession, instinctively self-preserving and yet with a real desire for consistency and respect. As a profession, it has been greedy and defensively conservative, but it has never been shameless, nor has it ever broken faith with its own large and selfish, but quite definite, propositions. It has never, for instance, had the shamelessness of such a traditionless and undisciplined class as the early factory organizers. It has never had the dull, incoherent wickedness of the sort of men who exploit drunkenness and the turf. It offends within limits. Barristers can be, and are, disbarred, but it is now a profession extraordinarily out of date. Its code of honor derives from a time of cruder and lower conceptions of human relationships. It apprehends the state as a mere ring kept about private disputations. It has not begun to move towards the modern conception of the collective enterprise as the determining criterion of human conduct. It sees its business as a mere play upon the rules of a game between man and man, or between men and men. They haggle they dispute, they inflict and suffer wrongs, they evade dues, and are liable or entitled to penalties and compensations. The primary business of the law is held to be decision in these wrangles, and as wrangling is subject to artistic elaboration, the business of the barrister is the business of a professional wrangler. He is a bravo in wig and gown who fights the duels of ordinary men because they are incapable very largely on account of the complexities of legal procedure, of fighting for themselves. His business is never to explore any fundamental right in the matter. His business is to say all that can be said for his client, and to conceal or minimize whatever can be said against his client the successful promoted advocate who in britain and the united states of america is the judge and whose habits and interests all incline him to disregard the reality of the case in favor of the points in the forensic game then adjudicates upon the contest now this condition of things is clearly incompatible with the modern conception of the world as becoming a divine kingdom When the world is openly and confessedly the kingdom of God, the law court will exist only to adjust the differing views of men as to the manner of their service to God. The only right of action one man will have against another will be that he has been prevented or hampered or distressed by the other in serving God. The idea of the law court will have changed entirely from a place of dispute, exaction and vengeance to a place of adjustment the individual or some state organization will plead on behalf of the common good either against some state official or state regulation or against the actions or inactions of another individual this is the only sort of legal proceedings compatible with the broad beliefs of the new faith every religion that becomes ascendant in so far as it is not otherworldly must necessarily set its stamp upon the methods and administration of the law that this was not the case with christianity is one of the many contributory aspects that lead one to the conviction that it was not christianity that took possession of the roman empire but an imperial adventurer who took possession of an all too complacent christianity Reverting now from these generalizations to the problem of the religious from which they arose, it will have become evident that the essential work of anyone who is conversant with the existing practice and literature of the law, and whose natural abilities are forensic, will lie in the direction of reconstructing the theory and practice of the law in harmony with modern conceptions of making that theory and practice clear and plain to ordinary men of reforming the abuses of the profession by working for the separation of bar and judiciary for the amalgamation of the solicitors and the barristers and the like needed reforms these are matters that will probably only be properly set right by a quickening of conscience among lawyers themselves Of no class of men is the help and service so necessary to the practical establishment of God's kingdom as of men learned and experienced in the law. And there is no reason why, for the present, an advocate should not continue to plead in the courts, provided he does his utmost only to handle cases in which he believes he can serve the right. Few righteous cases are ill-served by a frank disposition on the part of lawyer and client to put everything before the court. Thereby, of course, there arises a difficult case of conscience. What if a lawyer, believing his client to be in the right, discovers him to be in the wrong? He cannot throw up the case unless he has been scandalously deceived, because so he would betray the confidence his client has put in him to see him through. He has a right to give himself away, but not to give away his client in this fashion. If he has a chance of a private consultation, I think he ought to do his best to make his client admit the truth of the case and give in, but failing this, he has no right to be virtuous on behalf of another. No man may play God to another. He may remonstrate, but that is the limit of his right. He must respect a confidence, even if it is purely implicit and involuntary. I admit that here the barrister is in a cleft stick and that he must see the business through according to the confidence his client has put in him and afterwards be as sorry as he may be if an injustice ensues and also i would suggest a lawyer may with a fairly good conscience defend a guilty man as if he were innocent to save him from unjustly heavy penalties this comparatively full discussion of the barrister's problem has been embarked upon because it does bring in, in a very typical fashion, just those uncertainties and imperfections that abound in real life. Religious conviction gives us a general direction, but it stands aside from many of these entangled struggles in the jungle of conscience. Practice is often easier than a rule. In practice, a lawyer will know far more accurately than a hypothetical case can indicate how far he is bound to see his client through and how far he may play the keeper of his client's conscience. And nearly every day there happens instances where the most subtle casuistry will fail and the finger of conscience point unhesitatingly. One may have worried long in the preparations and preliminaries of the issue. One may bring the case at last into the final court of conscience in an apparently hopeless tangle. Then suddenly comes decision. The procedure of that silent, lit, and empty court in which a man states his case to God is very simple and perfect. The excuses and the special pleading shrivel and vanish. In a little while the case lies bare and plain. 8. The Oath of Allegiance the question of oaths of allegiance acts of acquiescence in existing governments and the like is one that arises at once with the acceptance of god as the supreme and real king of the earth at the worst caesar is a usurper a satrap claiming to be sovereign at the best he is provisional modern casuistry makes no great trouble for the believing public official the chief business of any believer is to do the work for which he is best fitted and since all state affairs are to become the affairs of god's kingdom it is of primary importance that they should come into the hands of god's servants it is scarcely less necessary to a believing man with administrative gifts that he should be in the public administration than that he should breathe and eat and whatever oath or the like to usurper church or usurper king has been set up to bar access to service is an oath imposed under duress If it cannot be avoided, it must be taken rather than that a man should become unserviceable. All such oaths are unfair and foolish things. They exclude no scoundrels. They are appeals to superstition. Whenever an opportunity occurs for the abolition of an oath, the servant of God will seize it, and where the oath is unavoidable, he will take it. The service of God is not to achieve a delicate consistency of statement, it is to do as much as one can of God's work. 9. The Priest and the Creed. It may be doubted if this line of reasoning regarding the official and his oath can be extended to excuse the priest or pledged minister of religion who finds that faith in the true God has ousted his formal beliefs. This has been a frequent and subtle moral problem in the intellectual life of the last hundred years. It has been increasingly difficult for any class of reading, talking, and discussing people, such as are the bulk of the priesthoods of the Christian churches, to escape hearing and reading the accumulated criticism of the Trinitarian theology and of the popularly accepted story of man's fall and salvation. Some have no doubt defeated this universal and insidious critical attack entirely, and honestly established themselves in a write-down acceptance of the articles and disciplines to which they have subscribed and the creeds they profess and repeat. Some have recanted and abandoned their positions in the priesthood, but a great number have neither resisted the bacillus of criticism nor left the churches to which they are attached, they have adopted compromises they have qualified their creeds with modifying footnotes of essential repudiation they have decided that plain statements are metaphors and have undercut transposed and inverted the most vital points of the vulgarly accepted beliefs one may find within the anglican communion arians unitarians atheists disbelievers in immortality attenuators of miracles there is scarcely a doubt or a cavil that has not found a lodgment within the ample charity of the english establishment i have been interested to hear one distinguished canon deplore that they did not identify the logos with the third instead of the second person of the trinity and another distinguished catholic apologist declare his indifference to the historical jesus Within most of the Christian communions, one may believe anything or nothing, provided only that one does not call too public an attention to one's eccentricity. The late Reverend Charles Voysey, for example, preached plainly in his church at Heel against the divinity of Christ, unhindered. It was only when he published his sermons under the provocative title of The Sling and the Stone and caused an outcry beyond the limits of his congregation that he was indicted and deprived now the reasons why these men do not leave the ministry or priesthood in which they find themselves are often very plausible it is probable that in very few cases is the retention of stipend or incumbency a conscious dishonesty at the worst it is mitigated by thought for wife or child it has only been during very exceptional phases of religious development and controversy that beliefs have been really sharp A creed, like a coin, it may be argued, loses little in practical value because it is worn or bears the image of a vanished king. The religious life is a reality that has closed itself in many garments, and the concern of the priest or minister is with the religious life and not with the poor symbols that may indeed pretend to express, but do, as a matter of fact, no more than indicate its direction, it is quite possible to maintain that the church and not the creed is the real and valuable instrument of religion that the religious life is sustained not by its propositions but by its routines anyone who seeks the intimate discussion of spiritual things with professional divines will find this is the substance of the case for the ecclesiastical skeptic his church he will admit mumbles its statement of truth but where else is truth what better formulae are to be found for ineffable things and meanwhile he does good that may be a valid defence before a man finds god but we who profess the worship and fellowship of the living god deny that religion is a matter of ineffable things the way of god is plain and simple and easy to understand therewith the whole position of the conforming sceptic is changed If a professional religious has any justification at all for his professionalism, it is surely that he proclaims the nearness and greatness of God. And these creeds and articles and orthodoxies are not proclamations, but curtains. They are a darkening and confusion of what should be crystal clear. What compensatory good can a priest pretend to do when his primary business is the truth and his method a lie? the oaths and incidental conformities of men who wish to serve god in the state are on a different footing altogether from the falsehood and mischief of one who knows the true god and yet recites to a trustful congregation foists upon a trustful congregation a misleading and ill phrased levantine creed such is the line of thought which will impose the renunciation of his temporalities and a complete cessation of services upon every ordained priest and minister as his first act of faith once that he has truly realized god it becomes possible for him ever to repeat his creed again his course seems plain and clear it becomes him to stand up before the flock he has led in error and to proclaim the being and nature of the one true god he must be explicit to the utmost of his powers. Then he may await his expulsion. It may be doubted whether it is sufficient for him to go away silently, making false excuses, or not at all for his retreat. He has to atone for the implicit acquiescences of his conforming years. End of chapter 5, parts 7 to 9. Recording by William Tomko.